The Big Light presents Hello, I'm Sean McDonald. You're listening to Blethered, and my guest is Warzone Security Advisor Steve Gordon. Recorded upstairs in a cafe in the heart of Istanbul, Steve talks about starting out as a war zone photojournalist before becoming a security advisor. You'll hear Steve talk about negotiating with ISIS for Western hostages, and he explains the realities of war and all that accompanies it. And as always, there's plenty more. This episode is brought to you by Debt Experts Don't Fret About Debt. If you're struggling with debt and you would like a free chat with an impartial advisor to discuss your options or to see how you can lower your monthly repayments towards debt, then visit don'tfretaboutdebt.net forward slash bleddered. You can also listen to my episode with Don't Fret About Debt senior debt advisor Tommy Gallagher, where we discuss taking back control of your debt and the various solutions available. Don't Fret About Debt offer all statutory debt solutions in Scotland, helping you to make an informed choice. So take the first step to dealing with your debt today. Free advice is also available from the Money Advice Service. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it. Cheers. Hey Steve, we're in the middle of Istanbul. You know better than me. Are we in the middle or are we on the periphery? We're on the European side, so kind of... Where we sit just now, once upon a time, we would have been right on the edge of what was Constantinople, right? Which is just across the Golden Horn, mm-hmm. which is the river and the bridge, just out there. Um, so we're pretty close to what would be the centre. But now, we're, the city's what got between 16 and 18 million people, so it goes a long way. That here. is insane, and it? That is almost quadruple the, the population of our entire native country of Scotland. Uh, Jamie, who's sitting beside us in, in silence here, working as my producer, uh, we were talking about Constantinople. I, I called it Constantinople, because I was like, how do you say that? What was that? Like, what, Do you know the history of that? Or, or was that just what Istanbul was before it was Istanbul? I mean, so you had the... So Constantinople was those beautiful walls see when you're coming in yeah. from the airport uh-huh. and you see those beautiful walled city and then you've got top Capi palace and then you've got um Hagia sophia sultan ahmed um suleiman's mosque mm-hmm. goes in the background that is basically what was constantinople which was um basically the holy roman empire right i might give this wrong i've got a Degree in theory in medieval history, so I might, I might, I might screw up my reputation here. But um, well, straight away, you're coming in here with far more credibility than me. So, so I can't uh, even anyway, fucking say the word. Well, the Holy Holy Roman Empire was kind of based here, and we had this was the most significant place in Eastern Christendom. Okay, right. So you had the Vatican and Catholicism. Mm-hmm obviously in Rome, and this was the other significant area. And obviously, you know, that's where the Orthodox Church Patriarch he was here. So this was the centre of Orthodox Christianity as such at some point in history. I feel like, hold on a minute, this might be a lesson. Patriarch is a person, was a person. 
Patri- is that what you just said there? Pa- patriarch is the head. So the the Pope. Right, okay. The can- the patriarch- you say patriarch? Well, it's patriarch a guy, and that's where patriarchal comes from. How much have I just made an absolute cut well, of myself to well, thousands of people listening? Well, funnily enough, he's a man, right? So it's that way. So I, right, okay. I'm guessing there's some link. What it was like some historical figure, and that's just where then the descriptive yeah. term came I, from, I, like patriarchal society. Wasn't he, he, he me try to fucking dial my stupidity back? <laughs> He he became the bastard man for everyone. Yeah, that's aye, where aye. patriarchal comes Sma- from. Smash the patriarchy. Mm. I mean, before we even go into the whole sort of biographical um, element of the conversation, I just I'm I'm really curious about just your experience in Istanbul. When you're rhyming off places like you, you obviously know the place inside out. Nine years that you've been here. I so basically the story is in 2013. Um, I, I was living in Nairobi previously, and I was working in Somalia. Um, and the Syrian war had just begun, and I can say these bits now. I can, there's a door about to slam, then it's just slammed. Close. That's it, quietly. by the way. We're, uh, to paint the picture, by the way, we're sitting up the stairs in, in Karakoy, which is just off the Bosphorus River. Uh, we had coffee in the They've been very accommodating for us. It's not a river. That's... You'll get, you'll get in trouble. People will write in, yeah, Bosphorus Strait. Bosphorus yeah. Strait. It connects two seas. Listen, look, to, to you listening, it's a fucking river, right? There's a bridge going across it and it's hundreds of water and it goes up and down and it's no that way. No, okay, yeah, it's the, it's the strait. Um, fuck, what was I going to say there? We were, I, I mean... Oh, I was saying, painting the picture to where we are, sorry. So, we're, um, sitting up, we're sitting up the stairs in this cafe and they've been very nice to us, but um, there will be some... It's like a, a throwback to the early episodes of Blethered where it's... There was, it used to be guys shaking cocktails or hoovers turning on because I was doing it in the middle of a, a hotel or whatever, but now we're upstairs in this cafe. Sorry, so you were saying shit kicked off in Syria 2013. So I was working in um, Somalia at the time and said the Syrian war had been going for some time, but it was starting to kind of become the kind of dominant conflict at the time. And I got the chance to have a job I wasn't happy where I was mm. and I wanted to work on Syria and so I took a job and initially I was based inside Syria and you accessed Syria via the Turkish border down in the south in a place a town called Kilis and so I started being based actually inside Syria I worked in kind of Aleppo in the north of Syria a lot but it became more and more and more dangerous. And then I was based inside Turkey on the border. Mm-hmm. And then gradually I moved back. The border even became dangerous. And there was a kidnapping risk. There was a whole host of things happening at the time. And then I was based in Gaziantep, which is in the south. And I worked on Syria. I worked on it for about five years. But after about two years, I started to cover the whole of the Middle East for the organisation I was working for. And therefore, when I stepped back, um, I decided Istanbul would be my home. And mm-hmm. so I've been, I've been living in Istanbul um, off and on for a f- quite a few years now. What are you, if you ever meet, say, just a person in a, a, a lift, for example, an elevator for you non-Scots or Brits, and somebody's like to you, what do you, what do you think about Istanbul? <laughs> somebody's like, what do you think about Istanbul? And you had to kind of summarise it in a sentence. What, what is your... You obviously must like being in the place, but because it's mental, it's so so different to 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 anything else. And and I know it's not Europe, but there's there's an element of culture and there's an element of chaos 
And I think the two are, if you can run with both of them, yeah. they're both fair. And, and there's every now and then, it's like any city, it gets to you, you've had enough, it feels claustrophobic, you feel trapped. But when you're on that ferry, yeah. and then you look at the skyline, there isn't another, there is not another city in the world with a skyline like that. It's no. unique. And it pulls at your heart, and you say, fuck it, I'll give it a few more years. Aye, it's an, it is an incredible place. Like, I had an idea of what to expect. So I've been here like four or five days now. And I had an idea of what to expect, but you don't really, until you're on the ground and you're going through all the wee streets and wee rooftops and back lanes and alleys, and you're like, wow, like it's a, every, I feel like every time I step out the hotel, it's like my adrenaline start, starts pumping. It's just, it is an incredible place. And it's this mix of such a cliche. And it's like, very good, you can repeat an Expedia travel guide but it's east meets west isn't it? and it's just it's not even that they're beside each other there's a wayne screaming uh it's not that they're beside each other it's like they're sort of inextricably linked and sort of mixed in like if you, what are what are some culture shocks that you've had because i'm getting hit with them every every time i step in a corner i'm like oh fuck for me it's not looking for culture shocks it's there's tensions between the cliche is to say East versus West, right? And this idea, but it seems like and they then, mix well. No, but people will say, oh, it sits in the boundaries between you know Westernized Europe, yeah. And then you've got a you've got part of Turkey in Europe, and then the majority of it's within Asia, and you know you've got an Islamic aspect of it, you've got a secular aspect of it. The thing is, it's all in your face, and you see it, yeah. And you see from the minarets. The mosques, you've got the Christian churches, um, you see it on the people on the street and kind of how things kind of happen. Um, I, it's it's chaos. It's mm -hmm. got an element of chaos, and the kind of chaos is something that you can run with, and that's it's kind of nice. Yeah. Well, we'll 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 talk more about your whole um, Turkish experience in being in Istanbul, but I suppose then to use the ultimate podcast cliche, we'll, we'll kind of rewind right back to the start. But So growing up in Glasgow, whereabouts in Glasgow did you grow up? Was it, was it Knightswood? Um, no, um, I grew up in Old Kilpatrick. I know, it's, my mum works in Old Kilpatrick. She's a teacher in uh, Kilpatrick, oh, I don't know if I should say that, I fuck it, uh, Kilpatrick School. Gavinburn School? Uh, just near the crematorium, do you know what I mean? Yeah. My, uh, my dad was a teacher, so uh, my dad taught in Gavinburn Primary right, okay. School. Um, before that, he ran betting shops and decided to get out of the betting oh, industry. Some change in it. <laughs> and became a school teacher. Oh, so that's why you were saying you would get him to put your bet on. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. you like me, you can see when I go into a bookies, which is on a rare, rare occasion, and I'll try and write out a, a coupon for the football. See when I walk up and I slide it over. I start getting my excuses in early, but oh, I wasn't really paying attention because they always come back and go, mate, what is it you're actually trying to achieve here? And I'm like, I just want to put a pound on Celtic or going to win. It's an art form filling in Aye, your betting slips. But anyway, that, so my dad was a primary school teacher there. So I grew up in Oakopatrick and I went to secondary school in Clydebank. Right. So that's kind of where I grew up, but I've still got family. My mum's in, um, in Knightswood, mm -hmm. where my dad's originally where from. Whereabouts in Knightswood? She's in Loxley, Loxley Avenue. My, my auntie Eileen stays, I'd like to give her a wee mention, stays near Carlybar Primary. Do you know that? I, I know it's kinda, where Oh, God, I couldn't even describe it as, but are they near each other or are they... They're, 
I, I nearly said, I nearly screwed up my Scottishness and said for a kilometre apart. Oh, no, no. What is it, three quarters of a mile? Aye, we're within range. No, no, we don't talk in miles, we talk in minutes. That's how we measure distance as a Scottish person. See, that confuses people so much in like Spain. They're like, where is it? And I'm like, it's about 15 minutes away. And they're like, that, that means nothing. I'm like, yeah, it does. It takes you 15 minutes to get there. Uh, so, I mean, what, what was, was your first, did you go straight into being a, a like a photojournalist? Or like, what, what was the story there? And I, I would like to say, by the way, that normally I freak people out with what I know about them. But you're a very difficult man to research, like to, to get into these, these details. Um. I mean, I was, so basically, I left school and I studied photography at Glasgow College of Building and Printing. Right. Um, I mean, it was probably, what, 1989, 1990. Um, so I, let's just say I enjoyed myself too much. <laughs> it wasn't too successful on my academic side of things. What was, sorry to totally divert us, right, but I, I just want to take the opportunity. So that's the year I was born, was 90. What was Glasgow like at that point? Was it because it, it was European city of culture in ninety? There was a garden festival in eighty eight. So it was an exciting place to be. Was it on? It feels as if it was on the up. Um, Glasgow, Glasgow's always had that kind of edge, you know. That and if you're from it, you tend to see negative parts of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think then I think being young it was incredible music, Aye. incredible culture, incredible clubs, and that was the dominant scene. Yeah. And so, the politics and everything else that was happening around you was irrelevant because you were young and it was exciting, mm-hmm. and that and you were going to go whatever direction you went. So that, that was that. Was it ninety that they came up with the Glasgow's Miles Better thing? Yeah. I wish they kept that. Remember it used to hack, do you know the... It was a Mr. Man. That guy couldn't be making any more... He's making noise with that bag on purpose, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, the Mr. Man thing, remember it used to hang from the... Uh, what's the big gas thing that's like near Proven Mill? Do you know what I'm talking about? And it used to hang the big thing and then they just get rid of it. They should keep that. There'll be loads of people who don't know. I'm glad that... Sorry, that wee guy was making all sorts of racket there. Um, he was eating crisps in the background. I know, he's like just trying his best to actually be noisy. Aye, but so it was a... You enjoyed being around about Glasgow, you didn't have the major urge to escape it at that point? I I think I always wanted to kind of get out of it. I mean, growing up, Clyde Bank, when I went to school, it was, it was a fairly kind of grim time. It's mm. like, you know, it's it's everybody talks about... It, it wasn't a nice time. Things were good. You felt you were in a city. It was in a kind of downward trajectory. And I remember, you know, when you started school... Life revolved around um, the shipyards, and this, this sounds like we're going down your, you know, like stereotypical cultures. But the reality was that most kids would leave and get apprenticeships, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember the numbers of apprenticeships. And when I left school, there was twenty-five apprenticeships for the entire kind of area, Bloody as yeah. such, right? So, but then again. Most of my friends went to uni. We were a different... It was a point when things changed. Mm-hmm. So instead of some of my friends went on, became apprentices, some went on to uni, I'd decided I was going to become a photographer, hell so, or high water, and so that like, was see, my... See course. the ones who went and did the apprenticeship? Were they like your up at six, grafters, hard worker? Is this like a dividing line where they were grafting, but you've went to uni and you're like, oh, hold on a minute, it doesn't need to be that way, like... 
going out with your pieces in the morning and you can have a good time. For, for was also, there was kind of different, it was different kind of cultural perspectives. You had people that got a good apprenticeship and then you'd your um, YTS. These were like the government ones yeah. with low money. So everyone's kind of, what opportunities were available to you were really down to kind of how how lucky you were mm -hmm. and how those resources kind of went. You know, I was lucky I had my mum and dad behind me, so that's why I was able to kind of head in my direction. Mm -hmm. But I did. Um, other kids I know, you know, it, it, it didn't go well. So it, it, it was, I say Glasgow, you know, I'm talking Clyde Bank, but it was, yeah. just, it was a specific time. Mm -hmm. There was a lot going on. Um, the area was fairly deprived. And... Yeah, you wanted to get out. It was all crap, but at the same time, you're having the time of your life. Aye, aye. So if that's 89, 90, you kind of started studying. You say that it didn't go well, but then you kind of started out in 93. So what went right in order for you to get your start? I I, I started, um, I mean, it's a strange story. I, I did one year um, of college and doing photography. And then I realised I wanted to do photojournalism, be a press photographer. Um, and then I started working in that and focusing on doing that and I started freelancing straight away. Um, I was really interested in fashion photography though. Right. This was the thing. And I did a lot, you know, I, I did a lot of fashion photography, a lot of testing my models, um, a lot of building up my portfolio. And that was the direction I was originally hoping to go. I started learning Spanish. I was going to move to Madrid. That was my plan. And then one night, instead of going out and hanging about with my mates, um, I get stuck in and I watched Panorama with my dad. And it was Martin Bell, BBC correspondent, in Sarajevo, reporting on the siege of Sarajevo. And it, I don't know why. I've never watched something that's had such a huge impact on me. It just sucked me in. Mm -hmm. And I thought... I don't know why, I just had this incredible desire to go there. It just, it's inexplicable. I was really young, I'd be like 1920, but the Bosnian War gradually sucked me in. I remember yeah. when the war in Croatia started, thinking, it, I, I remember once having a conversation about it, because it was the main news, standing in a queue waiting to get into an old air, <laughs> a nightclub <laughs> with my mates, right? And just thinking about, these mental people abroad that were having a war. And you can imagine the language that Glaswegians would use to describe that. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, within a year, that was what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. It just, something had changed and that was that. And I didn't understand how you got to places. Everybody's got this idea that you, you, to get to these places, you have to go through lots of training, you have lots of kind of different things, and you figure that out. It didn't dawn on me that you can just go. And gradually it did. And that's what I kind of just tried to figure out mm -hmm. best to do. And So, you, so God, I've got loads of questions that are all swimming about my head. So I'll try and sort of organise them. So when you say to just go, did you just think, I'm going to go there, I'm going to take photographs, I'm going to try and document what's going on, and I will find some source in which I can... I suppose monetize it in terms of did you go to like the BBC and go I'll go and take photos and I'll send you them like what's the what's this script there? I didn't initially. 
I didn't kind of have a concept of how this worked. Mm-hmm. I just had this desire to go and thought if I went, then I'd figure out the rest. But um, I was, at the time, I was a stringer on um, one of, I used to freelance and I think it was a, a Catholic Herald. Right, okay. Right? They've uh, have written about blether and, before. And I, and, yeah, and, and I went to Clydebank High, just a wee note for those right, who okay. want to take details. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I used to take pictures from them and they discussed there was an aid convoy going out. Would I be interested in going if mm-hmm. the opportunity came up? And so I instantly jumped on it and I took the opportunity and basically ended up hitchhiking out with his aid group. Wow. And that was the first time. And going there, taking pictures. And you weren't in the most affected areas, but just I took pictures, came back, sold them, Evening Times, you know, nice. things like that. Do you know they've changed their name? I didn't it's know. called the Glasgow Times now. I didn't know that. Tragic. Yeah. So you can't, you can't imagine a guy outside Central going, Glasgow Times. You, Remember that? You don't get that anymore. You, you used to, the Evening Times building used to have this bar that sat below the buildings, and that's where you got given assignments. At your oh, bar. Really? Like, you'd have, you'd have a kind hell? of part. You'd, you'd have meetings down there over booze. And kind of that's how it see, happened. See if there's anybody from that newspaper or from News Quest in general listening. Bring back those guys that stood at South Central. They stood in Argyle Street at MS, which is also shut down. Man, Glasgow's gone to shit mm. since you've left. But they start, they was, mind, there was a friend that does the nod. What? Oh, fuck, guy, they closed Sucky Hall. See, that's why I've got this guy here as my producer. Sorry, they haven't closed the, uh, they closed the Sucky Hall Street one. Uh, on that, by the way, I just wanted to say, about, uh, before I ask my serious questions, see when the guys would shout evening times. They weren't actually even jank, they would just see who could shout the most gibberish, but you still know, they just, they would go, but you still know what they were saying. Um, so you're selling like these pictures to the evening times and stuff. Did they, did they then go, oh, by the way, you're, you're useful? You know, would they then start saying, you know, we, we want to send you here, or like how did that kind of offshoot? It, it didn't work that way I mean a 20 year old coming into news desks and saying you know I want to cover war zones kind of doesn't kind of make sense you like, right off you go mate yeah, yeah sucky all street at closing time and it's kind of <laughs> that a war zone for you so is that kind of dynamic to it and um, I just that way needs to stop by the way I, we'll go and get him thank you go empty bottle <laughs> I'll just fling it down for the balcony sorry so um, we I mean I would plan a trip and then I'd arrange to sell one or two features. You'd look for a specific story okay. and then you'd go. And then you were, when you were there, you would, if something happened, then you could sell to like agencies like Reuters and AP and various mm-hmm. other people. Ah, right, okay. So gradually you figured out your market. Yeah. It, it, took, it took a while to figure it out. But I just think for me, just I, I, I'd have lived there happily I'd have, I'd have paid to stay there you know yeah. I just found it so involving so fascinating yeah. and then you know I did other work I did I did work for um, aid agencies who were going in I'd do publicity pictures for them and things okay. and that would help you with transportation accommodation and mm-hmm. various other things so it was just trying to figure out the market and how it how it lies so you you know far better than me but so just to kind of paint the picture, though, and please correct me where I get it wrong. So the war in Yugoslavia, eventually, did that 
bring about the the creation of countries like Croatia, Serbia, Bosnia? Is that right or is so, that right? So first of all, the first there's it's, it's several wars that happened during the breakup of Yugoslavia. Right. So first. The first country to break away was Slovenia. Right. And there was a very brief clashes that happened for about a week. But because um, the military was dominated by um, the Serbs, ethnic Serbs, mm -hmm. and Slovenia didn't have any Serb population living in those territories, it was seen as being allowed to go. The second part to happen was the war in Croatia, where you had a significant minority of Serbs living within Croatian territory. Um, and that that was a more ugly part. That was kind of 90, that kind of ran 91, 92. Okay. Then the Bosnian War followed on the declaration of independence of Bosnia Herzegovina and then the intervention of Serbian forces to stop that happening. And that started the Bosnian War, which ran till 1995. Right, okay. Then you had um, the place where all attention began within the former Yugoslavia, Kosovo, happened in 1998 through mm -hmm. to 99. Um, then you've also had limited trouble in Macedonia after Kosovo. It was linked to minority populations within these areas. But the breakup, I mean, now, now we think of former Yugoslavia as more stable, but the current dynamics... Um, you know, Bosnia and Kosovo still feel um, aggrieved by what happened yeah. and the dynamics and particularly, you know, the risk of the Serbs declaring independence in Bosnia. So yeah. these problems are still there. They were, you know, there was a peace treaty, mm -hmm. um, but the reality is that it hasn't resolved the issues. So the reason I was asking even just for a, that is a, a terrific breakdown of, of the sort of conflicts in the the chronology of them. So for regular listeners of Blethered, they'll, they'll know about uh, Eamon Dean. They'll listen to Eamon Dean, the former Al-Qaeda uh, bomb maker turned MI6 spy, and his first foray, if you will, into um, global conflict was going to defend the, the Muslims in Bosnia. And then there's Robert McNeil, MBE, the uh, former UN worker, I suppose you would call him, who went to uncover evidence of... of genocide in Bosnia and Srebrenica and it's quite funny that you've we've had someone who was involved in the conflict someone who's involved with the UN and now we've got somebody chatting to me who was there documenting it I mean what what are your like memories I mean does that does that type of thing scar you like because I was scarred about hearing the genuinely really like horrified and upset hearing some of the gory details so how's a few you're seeing it sort of unfiltered I it's very strange that I went at a very young age, um, and at the time, I believed in it. I was so sucked in by what was happening, but I didn't think it damaged me because it became part of my life, right? And I lived, I lived in the Balkans for about nine years um, continually, pretty much. And I, I don't think I fully processed it processed it until recently and I don't think you realise how traumatised you are by these events and kind of what you see around you yeah. and I think it must have been it must have been about 20 years after the Bosnian War before I actually made peace with it in my head and kind of could understand and process it um, because I, I think at the time you just dive in head first. Strange you kind of, when you're young you're growing up 
you're looking at all these people you admire and you want a Hollywood script life, right? You want your life to read, you want some excitement. Yeah. I don't think you're bargaining how much excitement you're going to get <laughs> yeah. and the impact and how that can affect you later on in life. And the thing is, though, these are such massive experiences and when you leave them, you feel you don't fit in. And so you inadvertently go seeking the gunfire again. Yeah. You look for the next, and you're terrified of missing the next place, and the next place, and the next place. And then your life essentially becomes just this chain of these conflicts that you end up chasing about in some form or other and how yeah. you're working. And it builds and it builds and it builds. And it's, it's strange, it's only lately I've had conversations with many friends, and these are some real tough, some of them are ex-military, some of them from different backgrounds, and it's only now so many of us can turn around and, you know, look each other in the eye and say, you know, yes, I've got PTSD, yes, I've got anxiety caused by what you've done. And it's strange, it's only now I notice people being honest about being able to engage in these things, because otherwise it's a macho thing that is like, yeah, I can cope with this, this is fine, this is completely normal. It's not normal. And what becomes, what I noticed for me is, you know, I, if I went from Bosnia, then I went right through the warm Kosovo, and then it would be um, the second intifada, and then moving on from there, um, Darfur, um, moving on from Darfur, Iraq, and you kind of follow, you end up kind of chasing these countries around, and then you end up, at, you know, countries that have had a major effect on me, Bosnia, Kosovo, um, Syria in particular, Yemen, um, Afghanistan, and you don't plan this, you just kind of follow these things around and you build layer upon layer upon layer of damage. Yeah. But you don't realise because when you arrive to these places, it feels completely normal. It's strange. <coughs> I, I find myself more, I'm more scared of Glasgow <laughs> at night than I am of, you know, I was in Ukraine fairly recently. You know, yeah. I, was, I, was, I was up in Kharkiv on the border when the Russians were very close there. And... It's strange that they've, those situations become so normal, which is not normal. It's completely no, it's... abnormal. But you've changed your psyche yeah. to live in these abnormal things. And yet, you know, things that scare me, lawyers, insurance, <laughs> letters, yeah. court letters. Do you know, it's like your brain kind of like, yeah. it's, it's hard to explain how it just itself. When when you see so much conflict and therefore you're going to see so much, I suppose, evil in the world, does that does that shape? The, do, do you become a bit disillusioned with humanity, or do you see it as it is? Although you're in the middle of it, do you see it as this is an isolated thing and the world is still good and people are still good? Like, how do you reconcile with that in your head? You, there's two ways to look at that. And it depends on how you feel that day, right? Yeah. And on one sense, you can be incredibly despondent because you know how this ends. Yeah. You've seen, when you see so many conflicts, you've seen it and you know where it goes and you know where it leads to and you become incredibly cynical as well. 
But then again, at the same time, the positive side is when you're in these circumstances and you're so close to evil, you see such good. Yeah. You see the best. And is I that think, about yin and yang? Yeah, it's, it's finding... It's how you look at it. A glass is either... Let's roll out the cliches, yeah. but it's either, glass is either you know, half full or... Half empty. Half empty. And yeah. it's like, you know, your mind attaches in different days. Mm. Some days it can feel overwhelming. Other days it's just like, yeah, there's too much beauty, we'll win through. What are, the, are there other periods of exhilaration? Because, like, say when... Uh, I mean, we all know how this ended, right? But in the Iraq War. But in those early days, it was presented to us anyway. Well, me watching it as a 12-year-old in Western media was like, oh, this is a, a monument, like the, the fall of Saddam and when they were tore down his statue and they were hitting the statue with shoe, uh, their sandals or whatever. And it felt to me as if, wow, kind of witnessing history here, this is a real positive. Then obviously things go on, you're like, hold on a minute, this isn't the kind of what I expected. But in, this, in those moments, do you think, wow, I'm witnessing proper global history here? Or are you thinking, well, this is just my job, I need to snap this and then on to the next one? I, it's kind of strange that you're very much aware that you've witnessed history, yeah. right? And a lot of the times it feels like being on the sidelines of major events and you're always kind of aware... That'd be a bit of Forrest Gumpy. Yeah, it, it just feels like you're in the background, <laughs> peering over, yeah. and you, in turn, you're never directly involved, but you're always just right next to these things, and it happens, and you have a sense of kind of history as such as it kind of goes forward. But, uh, yeah, it, different places have different impacts on the significance of it. Um, Kosovo, I mean, watching, having worked in Kosovo during the war, and seeing what happened there, and then watching them be liberated yeah. when the troops came across. That was incredible. That was on a level that you couldn't imagine what mm -hmm. you were seeing. And strange stuff, you, you get to witness. I remember stupid events where you've helped people. And I remember once... These, these things kind of live in your head. And I remember once um, we went, my driver interpreter, um, his um, uncle was on what was becoming a front line. And because we had the permissions and the cars and the IDs, we could get across that front line. And so we heard that the Serbs were building up a front line and liable to attack this village. And this is before the NATO inter intervention. And so we drove round, got through the checkpoint and came, and we got him, and we got him out of there, right? We took him out. Now, if you looked across the field, you could see, you could actually see the soldiers running through, moving towards the village, right? Mm -hmm. Running and dropping down and running and dropping down. And I remember this urgency, and I can remember as we dropped down, you see their helmets, we this, they were um, units of um, the regular kind of Serbian forces, and with these metal helmets on, and each time they ran and dropped, you'd see their helmets. <laughs> That's how close it was, yeah, you could yeah. see these details. But I remember thinking, we need to get out here quickly, and watching this guy go around and check He'd unplugged everything. Imagine leaving your house for the last time ever, you're ever going to see your house. Yeah. And watching him 
and realising I couldn't tell him. You're never coming back. But, you know, I couldn't pressurise him because yeah. he's leaving this, he's checking the washing machine, he's unplugged, yeah. he unplugged it, thanks. And then watch him lock the door uh. and check the thing. And then you bundle him into a car and you race out at breakneck speed. And next thing you know, you're pulling past all these tanks and things and you can hear gunfire and things. And you've just pulled him out. And that's the last time that house would be burnt. Yeah. Within three, four days, it's gone, right? But it's, you're just so aware of those moments that you know, the people involved are unaware of what's happening, but because you've seen it before, you're yeah. like, here it goes. And you create a distance. Yeah, see, that's really, that's kind of like arms, uh, arms, hairs on my arms kind of standing up a wee bit because, you know, like we were talking about the, um, the, the Syrian refugees that you said there's maybe like 4.6 million roughly that are in Turkey. And I was saying just as we were eating that it becomes, when you hear numbers like that, they're so high and it then becomes, there's a distance in your mind because you're like, oh, that's 4.6 million people and you just think of this collective that you're disassociated from because it's such a, an incomprehensibly large number. Then, uh, you know, I saw the other night and it felt like bursting into tears. There was a woman walking through. This is at, like, midnight. Mm. And a woman's walking through with a baby and I swear to fuck, like, this baby wasn't even two. It's a baby. Barely walking. And she had a sign saying, like, I'm Syrian, can you help? So I gave her money and I was saying to Jamie, I was like, in that moment, when you're, I, I'm face to face, as I leaned over the barrier, we're almost nose to nose close, and you're like, that's a real person, and there's loads of these. And for us then watching at home, the the information, the way it's presented, we see it as, oh, that's a sad thing, but they're, you know, they're miles away. And let's be honest, you're like, they look so different from us, and I don't think that's a crime, I think that's kind of, it's human nature in it. Someone looks really different to you, they dress really differently. And there is a sort of distance between you, because I'm also watching it on a TV screen. But for you, with that guy, you are witness, you, you're in his wee world, you're in his wee bubble, and, and you're seeing those moments, and you know how it's playing out, and he does not. But this, I'd, I'd, I'd question again there, it's like once upon a time we could use people how they look, but... The world's changed. Mm -hmm. Do you know, it's like skin colour, all of that is becoming, should be becoming more relevant uh, now. Yeah, yeah. Irrelevant. Yeah. But there's these points. And the thing is that as you see these people, I think the secret is to focus on the humanity. Yeah, right? definitely. And it's a really important thing is to focus on that humanity. Something with the Syrian war... I remember there was an article that stuck in my brain a lot. And when you saw the scale of the tragedy that happened in Syria, but we won you wondered why it didn't make the same impact, for example, that Ukraine has made now. Yeah. The entire world's mobilised, it seems. All of Europe is mobilised. I think it's because um, they look more similar to us, which is a, it's terrible. Yeah. Like, sorry to kind of jump in, but I, that's... That's how I see it, and I've kind of been... I can't remember where I said it or what I was on. I was on a show, and I was like, I've been encouraged, and at times feel the eyes filling up, and you see what people are doing. Like, there was a video of um, Ukrainian refugees going to an Italian school for the first time. They're really nervous. They open the doors, and all the kids are all there with Ukrainian flags and Ukrainian music to mm. welcome them. 
And then there's me, pure greeting like, that's the loveliest thing ever. And you're like, can we not possibly maybe consider being as nice to people who are darker skinned than us and maybe have different traditions and look differently? Could we maybe not also do that for them? Like, why can we not be this nice all the time? Like, it's, and it, in one hand, you're encouraged. In the other hand, you're like, fuck, man, that's depressing. Why can we not be just as nice to them? The world would surely be a nicer place. I think, I mean, for example, Ukraine kind of... Before Ukraine, I was working on Afghanistan and we had, you know, with the Taliban taking over Afghanistan and um, all of a sudden you had people associated with the government fleeing for their lives. Yeah. Really desperate situations and personally dealing with people in these real, real desperate situations. Genuinely terrified for a life. And feeling so helpless and unable to do anything yeah. to help. And then when you see this response, and I, I think just now, it's, there's, I mean, the, from I re, something, it's a very personal opinion on this. And, you know, people talk about politics, you talk about the left, you talk about the right, and how people view the current conflicts in the world just now. I think the reality is... The humanity of a Syrian, the humanity of a Yemeni, the humanity of a Palestinian, a Ukrainian, it's all equal, it's all right? Sudanese, Somali, it's all equal. We have to get that back on track and back on balance where people's value is the same rather than one being a bit closer than the others. Yeah. And that's what really, it feels painful. And... There's a level of racism in that which makes it more difficult to accept just now. Yeah. And it just feels just now. Finally, you're, you know, we've got this response to war and it's good, it's welcoming, but all these other ones have been shut out and it leaves a bad taste. Yeah. With, um, I suppose, because you are mentioning saying working in, in a lot of these places... It wasn't always as a photojournalist. At which point did you end up making a sort of transition into being like a security advisor? And, um, and if you could explain, please, what that actually entails, that title. Um, I mean, so about the past 13 years, I've worked as a safety and security advisor. Mm -hmm. um, mainly, I did, I've done some work for media teams, but the majority of it has been for... Um, non-governmental organisations, aid organisations, yeah. effectively. And on one level, um, that job... There's a multitude of different things it involves. On one level, it responds to dealing with crisis. So if, for example, your staff are detained, leading up that process of how you negotiate them out, how trying to kind of make contact, communications... Another important aspect of it is um, humanitarian access. Um, under national, international humanitarian law, which there actually is one, but it feels like now nothing yeah, matters. Everybody just patches it all the time, but a lot of countries. Basically, what, what it is, is you know, you're meant to have humanitarian access, right? And that is based upon you, the stance of you being neutral and impartial in how yeah. you work. So a lot of the time, it's making sure that you can impartially deal with these actors. 
a lot of these actors now in the world, we have multitude of what are called non-state actors. And these are your ISIS, your PKK. Do you know, these Al-Qaeda, these are non-state actors that hold power. And a lot of the challenge is, is um, like Ansar, Ansar Allah in Yemeni, do you know, the Houthis? They're another example of these groups. They're a non-state actor. And quite often what you're doing is negotiating this access, but without compromising your humanitarian principles. That means you're not giving them anything. You're not allowing them to profit from your work. Right. And the focus is you basically see where there's needs and you try and deliver the aid to those areas ah, that right, okay. need. But there's other aspects. Some of it is training your staff how to work in these areas, what to do, what to do under fire, what to do you know, when you've been shelled, um, looking at protocols to make your staff safer as you go through. The sexy stuff that lives in people's minds is like hostage negotiation, these kind of things. Um, but the day-to-day -day stuff is more looking at, you know, how do you keep your staff safe in these, in these areas and how do you negotiate your access with these people? So like a sort of preparation and prevention type of method as opposed to, I don't know, being like Mission Impossible dropped into you know, a tense situation? It's, it's, it's more a case of plan. It's strange, you know, for a former journalist to do this, people think it's strange. It's not. It's the exact same. As a journalist, you need to be able to make contacts, you need to understand context, and be able to understand a good part of that country, the dynamics mm -hmm. and what happens there. It's just a different end product. Yeah. Do you know, instead of writing a nice article, basically you're thinking, how can we work safely and remain operational mm -hmm. in this area? So do you think because of your, your, your experience in these areas and the, the knowledge that you're gathering, did someone come to you and say, by the way, I think you'd be great at this, or did you see the opportunity and go for it based on what you'd accrued over it, that time? It was strange. I was actually... I was... I was basically about to try and do some camera work for Channel 4. Right. And to do that, you've got to do hostile environment training courses. So I went off in this hostile environment training course and I'm sitting having another drink with one of the trainers, who of course was an ex-military guy, he was an officer. And he was trying to train journalists. And journalists are by nature cheeky, inquisitive, you know, kind of like different yeah. things. Whereas military people tend to be fairly, you know, they obey, but you know, they've got a chain of command and they respect a chain of command. Yeah. So it's like a clash of personalities. And I was like, why don't you get a journalist to teach this from their perspective? Because then it doesn't seem like we're being lectured by the military guy. And he's like, that's a good idea. And I ended up getting involved in these courses, training journalists. And then... I realised there was quite a lot of aid organisations doing similar kind of trainings as well. And it was more stable. And so I took a job. Um, it was in Pakistan at the time. And I took his job. And that's what started me kind of back in this direction. It's strange. In my head, I still think I'm a journalist. Yeah. You know, I haven't quite... Uh -huh. I feel like the odd one out amongst all the aid security people. But um, it's it's... It's strange how it kind of starts, but now that's kind of the direction it's taken me it's, It seems to me as if, like, now you were saying that you're constantly chasing that next war zone or whatever, it seems to me like your brain has maybe subconsciously went, here, we need to up the ante, we need to 
this things need to get a bit more mental now as if you'd just kind of become used to what you were doing? Journalism, journalism is kind of more, you look after yourself. Mm-hmm. This is being responsible for lots of people. And when, that, when you finally, when a penny drops and you're responsible for lots of people, it, it keeps you awake at night more. <laughs> well, it's really funny you say that. Jamie, sitting beside us right now, in silence, patiently listening, he is like, what is your hang me on the boat? Not a captain, first officer. So far, you can, sorry, people can hear you. First officer, right? And he, so he, therefore, is, he's said to me at times, when he's like at night time or whatever, and he's the only one on the bridge and he's sailing this boat or doing whatever, like, you know, through some mental places in the world, he's like, oh, fuck, I'm responsible for all of these people's lives. Now, is that not a pressure, an added stress that you already don't need? Or do you just do you just roll with the punches and this is it and, you know, deal with it? I, I mean, you go through periods where it's easy to hold that stress and then you have other points where it just builds and builds and builds. And I think if you can keep a level of distance, um, it's easier to handle that. But then when individual events happen to people and you know those people, mm-hmm. and the longer it happens, you end up knowing their families, you know the details of it, it gets harder and harder to ignore. Yeah. And you take it on, and it takes more and more st- stress. The older you get, the harder it is to distance it, I find. Mm-hmm. It's basically, I'm the way I view it now is, I'm going through a multitude of pain for the pain I put my mum and dad through by doing this, uh-huh. by going to these stupid places. What? This is now, this is revenge is now, but <laughs> I carry <laughs> yeah. that responsibility. Yeah. I, do you know, I didn't even think of that, because, you know, you were saying that, that I met your daughter when she was an intern at the Big Light and she was staying with, with your mum in Knightswood. Your mum's in her 80s. Like, let's buy... Uh, on the opposite side of it, what like what's your mum? What does she get up to? Does she like to just live the life of a you know some typical person her age? Is she just having a bit of quiet, nice wee time to herself. She, I mean, it, it's that way that she she, uh, she wishes it was closer, right? Yeah. Obviously, I'm a distance away now. She wishes it was closer. We speak about three or four times. A Sometimes day? a day, yeah, yeah she'll yeah. FaceTime me. And it's the same when I'm working uh-huh. in these places. So, we still speak regularly. So hold on a minute. Like she, she follows us stuff. She, and the problem is because I'm there. She's probably an I, expert in geopolitics. She follows us stuff. And it kind of I try and keep her back from it, but it's impossible. So the, what I'm imagining, right, is like she's sitting in, uh, I don't know, Greg's, and she's having a sandwich and a cup of tea. And she's on FaceTime with you, and you're in like the she's middle of fucking. Pasty. Aye, and she's a steak, Vic. Mm. If, if Greg's wanting to then send us a wee discount oh. card. Oh, um, yeah, um, could I have a cappuccino? Cappuccino, cappuccino and uh, soda. Ikitani soda, Lutman. Soda, sadi. Evie. That was just me saying thank you in Turkish if anybody was wondering that. Uh, sorry, somebody the, asked. The door. Now we've basically been granted this space upstairs. I know. Now. I, they've shut it. That's and they've shut the door. Whereas we didn't plan as the window closed the door early. That, that is uh, that is very nice of them. Sorry. So your mum's in Greg's. She's having a cheese and onion pasta and a cup of tea, and somebody could maybe glance over and go, "Oh, she's on the phone to somebody in Facetime," not realizing that you're in the fucking Donbass region and like Ukraine and all sorts of chaos is going on. Like that is. 
quite a funny sort of juxtaposition of of worlds because she's um, heavily immersed in yours, but she's in Knightswood just having a nice wee time. Do you know it's it it's that way? You try. Once upon a time, you'd have went, oh, I'm not fair. That's all that trouble's happening. Do you know you'd have yeah, done and tried to divert. But now, I, like so with my kids as well, you're honest. You say, I'm going here. Yeah. This is where I'm going, and. I'll communicate with you on a daily basis and I'll tell you what it's like. We'll do that. Do they panic or do they think, oh, Dad's away doing this and that's just how it is? It's back to your question about normality. That's become their norm normality. <laughs> but now, being older and wiser, it's not normal. Yeah. It, it, you know, it's so funny. They'll be, I don't know, they'll probably talk and be like, yeah, Dad's away here working and... Other kids might be like, what? He's doing what? And then they'll be like, well, your dad doesn't work in war zones. Like, that's, I just thought that's so everybody would work. You mentioned what we kind of touched upon um, getting inv heavily involved in other people's situations or, you know, people that are maybe in a, a tough scenario or situation and knowing their families. Like, I don't want to sort of prod too much in what may be a really sensitive subject, but are there any that kind of stand out for you? I mean, there, there's one, one situation that I'll talk to, I, that I'll talk about, was um, I was involved with um, Kayla Mueller's family. Um, Kayla Mueller um, was one of the ISIS hostages oh, in Jesus. Syria. Um, and also, it, it was this kind of strange course of events that happened. Um, I remember, I was actually working in Aleppo City myself, and we came out um, back into Turkey. And I think it must have been about two, three days later, there was a rumor that an American had been kidnapped oh. at the checkpoint in Aleppo where you came through. So we'd come through, it was, this, it was called the Grand Sharia checkpoint at Sheikh Najjar. And it turns out that day, two Americans, one Stephen Sotlov, a journalist, yeah. and Kayla Mueller, were captured by ISIS uh. at that checkpoint. So obviously, you didn't understand fully kind of the situation, how this had happened. And there was very little information about this. People were trying to keep it out of the media. Um, and because we worked there, because I'd directly been going in and out there, you mm -hmm. wanted to know as much as possible had happened. And then gradually, um, over the course, we discovered that um, there, nobody was really doing anything. The US government wasn't allowed to send any teams because of the risk of Syria. They couldn't go there. And they weren't allowed close by. So the FBI were aware and looking, but in reality, there was no one on the ground as such. And I remember initially getting involved just to try and understand more about what happened for the sake of our operations in that city. We'd, we'd a massive, we were, we were basically, um, the organization I was working for was putting a lot of food aid into the city at that time. Right. I mean, we're talking thousands of tons. And so it was a big, big operation. We wanted to know what was happening. And gradually, um, we discovered more and more information about how she was taken and where she was held. And eventually we get introduced, I get introduced to her parents. And this was just 
this wonderful couple, Marsha and Carl, and they basically were trying to cope with all of this. And with the US, yeah. obviously telling them what they could do and what they couldn't do, but yeah. no one could actually help them, and they were left unable to do any of this. So I basically helped him as an advisor, kind of through this situation. And it went, you know, it went on for a very long time. And, you know, obviously there was various points, kind of, it was a very kind of strange, surreal situation because at the same time there was a whole bunch of journalists held. And at the time, no one really knew who was being held yeah. where and how many people. And I had information because I'd spoken diplomatic missions, different other groups, so I knew. And I was help working closely with people who were working to assist journalists who were being held in there. And it ended in, the, I mean, at one period with a really strange experience um, that we found out this guy had been held by ISIS who knew Kayla and he'd been released and we managed to get him out, smuggled out and we did the first interview with him and he described where he was held and what was going on and the people around and we were able to identify 12 people and it was the first time that we... No, I saw, yeah, it's okay, and you come, we're just getting a coffee dropped off. This your curry, Jog jog sal. And we, we were able to kind of, like, get proof of life on 12 people. Some of these people managed to get released, some of them didn't. And so that whole kind of process... And then you'd the point when ISIS would release the videos and you'd people, you know, friends who knew these people very closely and you watched the reaction to them as the videos were done. So it was a really, really kind of strange, traumatic period. Uh. And then, you know, Caleb, I mean, we believe the, the ISIS story is she was killed in a Jordanian airstrike after ISIS had killed a Jordanian pilot. Yeah, that's, was it the, the Jordanian pilot, they shot him down and then they captured him and they put him in a cage and set it alight, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, so after, this was an airstrikes and revenge to yeah. his death. And all of a sudden, it was just, it was a level of horror. And I think getting to see it, particularly through um, Marsha Mueller's eyes, Seeing a mother. That hits the reality home. A mother looking for a daughter in a hopeless situation like that. That'll never leave me. That'll never, never, never leave me. And it's it's one of these things that they're still looking for answers. Yeah. They were treated bad on so many levels. And how these and I think that really, really is a sobering experience. Mm -hmm. I and I kind of previously with journalists, they're always looking for the bang bang. That's, yeah. where's, where's the action? And the excitement of covering conflicts, but being on that other side, when you're exposed to the emotional damage, the horrors that happen, that, that, was, that was a very hard experience.
that mm-hmm. was really difficult to live with. With, with this being obviously just a, an audio podcast and... I have to to kind of give a, an idea to the the listener that as as you kind of you can see you're maybe recalling the details there the the physical expressions and unrestricted physical expressions of angst and stress was written over your face there like it's I, I can't even imagine I mean do you do you consider like do you get offered counselling or anything like that to kind of deal with that type of thing I think it's strange when you work continually surrounded by trauma and we've we've changed our attitudes to this um, once upon a time if you went for counselling in my game yeah. the job was finished aye, aye. but I think now we're much more honest about yeah. these things and you can have these conversations um, I think the level of anxiety that it can give you if you don't have a release yeah. remember counselling Counselling is um, a form of conversation, right? And when you work in this game, there's people you have around you who you're very close to and you talk honestly. And that's similar. So there's ways that you can counsel yourself, but sometimes you need to just hold your hands up and say, that's it, it's a fair cop. Do you know, it's like 29 years off and on in war zones. It's like now I can hold my hands up and say, do you know, that's... It, it's, it hits hard. I can understand we like sort of antiquated and outdated um, ideas or perceptions of what being uh, tough and strong and mentally thing me and, and resilient and all that is. I can get why people would shy away from the the counselling aspect. As you say, you're finished at that point. But obviously, we now know that if you if you do do that and talk about it, whether it's in, in a very casual way or a very um, structured and, and professional way, that in fact it'll allow you to do your job you know far better like far be it for me to tell anybody what to do I'm not doing that but occasionally when chats like this come up I even like to say to anybody listening on a much smaller smaller scale if there's anything that's happened in I don't know in your life and it tends to play on your mind or it's quite heavy in your in your brain talking about it whatever it may be is such a positive thing because you're essentially unpacking it you're unpacking it these knots in your brain I kind of liken it to two things letting go of a stone that gets heavier in weight the longer you carry it but also you're for me anyway like I find my brain can be a whole muddle of string and knots and just talking about it can help me unpack them and I feel a lot calmer and better in my life and I'm like ah you know I've kind of processed that shit now and I can push forward in my life a wee bit I mean, one, 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 the most revolutionary moment in my life for this was um, I, I'd never processed Bosnia. And I had a very dear friend um, who I shared a room with in Bosnia, and she was killed there in 1993. God. And I'd never, rather than dealing with it, I carried on and thought, yeah, I'm carrying on the tradition. This yeah. is what we do. This is how we live. It's hard living. It's rock and roll, it's exciting, this is it. And I never kind of processed that properly. And about 20 years to the day, it was the 20th anniversary of her death, and a friend of mine wangled a conference, so I was in Sarajevo, just around that period. Now, I missed the actual (coughs) commemoration, and then um, I thought, 
I'm going to go back. It was Mostar. So basically, she was killed in Mostar. We were talking about Mostar in southern Bosnia earlier. Yeah. And I thought, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go to the point and I'm going to just see what it feels like. And I had a fellow Glaswegian, this guy, Jim Marshall. Jim Marshall's from his Kilbride, right? He's not a Glaswegian. Aye, upset. you're not, sorry, Jim, yeah. you're not getting that one. Right? <laughs> um, Jim, Jim kind of holds, holds um, his title as, I think he was the last foreigner um, to be directly injured at Sarajevo Airport. So he was shot in the leg by a sniper. Oh my God. At Sarajevo Airport in 1995, if I remember rightly. But anyway, so Jim never left Sarajevo, lived there. Right. And I, I, I phoned him up and I said, Jim, I'm going down to Mostar. And he knew. It was all unwritten because when you work in these things. Yeah. And I said, I'm going down to Mostar. And he says, would you like me to come with you? And I went, yeah, yeah. And so anyway, we drove down and we got there. And it was strange that I'd been back there, but I'd never consciously been back to try and deal with this. Yeah. And X number of years later, I walked directly to the spot. I knew where it was, where it happened, where, you know, the plaque was. And no problem, straight, found my way there and stood there. I, I was standing there and there was a silence and I didn't know what to do, you know, what it was going to be like. And Jim just looked at me and said, it's okay, she's not here. And all of a sudden... I was able to process. Everything had been chaotic, running away, tears, um, you know, drink, drugs, anything to escape that process. But he just said that, and that was it. All of a sudden, at 20 years, someone so simple and so intelligent was able to click my brain to process yeah. that. And it's just that line. It's okay, she's not here. Aye. And that's... That, for me, that was a key point of thinking, you have to face things, you have to deal things. Otherwise, you can. I, I, I never kind of shy away from t being honest, like when I'm feeling the most in it, but like, I don't know, I am kind of crying hearing that, but that's, I don't know, oh man. My mouth, you know, like a wee, when you give a kid's getting into trouble and their mouth starts shaking because they're trying not to cry. But I mean, I don't know for you listening, like if, I don't know if the, the person listening kind of felt what I felt there, like, I mean, what was that like for you? Was that, I mean, did you, I, I get what you're saying about you greeting as well, or just me? Or is it because that guy's coming in? Fucking hell. I think as well, with that logic, I kind of put myself, you know, like you always apply your own sort of scenarios or situations to that. There's a guy filling up a fridge, by the way, we, oh, he's away. I'm glad that guy came in there, bloody hell, that just like a pure, proper, just getting hit by a bus of emotion there. We're Glaswegians, we're not used to talking about emotions. Yeah, I know, I know. This, this is wrong. That is such a nice, such a nice way for him to put it. I'm assuming he maybe arrived at that conclusion a lot earlier than you did and he was <laughs> able to impart that wisdom. Yeah. Fucking hell, man. Mm. I didn't really see that happening there, God. Mm. Anyway, right, so see last night, Mm -hmm. This guy banged into me, I just fucking sparked him out, man. Just two of them, there four of them actually. <laughs> I battled, battled four of them at one time. What are you talking about? I wasn't crying. <laughs> um, see when you're on hot, like, you know how um, 
people who grow up in, in chaotic environments with violence or tension, they can sometimes tend to gravitate towards those types of partners and relationships because that's their baseline of normal. Do you know what I mean by that? See when you're on holiday, like you're saying to me, you're considering going down to a Greek island in the next couple of weeks. See when you're lying by a pool reading a book, do you feel on edge because you're like, your baseline is like this high level of stress or can you switch off and relax? Sometimes you can, sometimes you can. It's kind of how you approach it. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of the past. My kids will tell you the number of, any number of holidays over the past years has consisted of us sitting by a swimming pool and me and the computer on the phone shouting to someone <laughs> about something like this, some scenario that's happening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my kids kind of are experts in Syria, Yemen and Afghanistan through because that's all they've heard <laughs> come out of me. Yeah. And it's, it's just, there's different points, different things we get. It's learning to switch off. It's only now that I'm learning. Previously, I never went on holiday because... I just travelled for a living. Yeah, I, do you know I travel? So yeah. why do you want to go in an airport? Do you know it's airports? You live in an airport. It's like why do I want to get in a plane? <laughs> and it's I, only now I'm learning to kind of yeah. switch myself. Oh, there's off. a different type of travel. There's travel for work and there's travel for for pleasure. The other thing, though, it's like, I mean, I I used to. It's that way. You you found yourself looking for more than extreme things. So. When, it's kind of strange that I used to do, you know, I did, I did a lot of climbing growing up, um, particularly winter mountaineering, which I love. And then all of a sudden, lately, I started doing a lot of off-piece skiing. And you didn't realise, but the reality was you were chasing, when you were on holiday, you were chasing that same pro process. Yeah. And then I was, I was heli-skiing in Georgia about three years ago. What's heli skiing? It's where you get helicoptered up on fuck the top off. of the mountain <laughs> and basically skiing down the glacier. Yeah, fucking mad bastard, man. <laughs> no, but the thing was, I'd, I didn't realise that I was looking for, yeah. when I wasn't pushing work, I was pushing Aye. my personal life. I had a really bad accident and I broke my leg. Jesus. I broke my leg in six places, right? Ended up in the Georgian State Hospital, 1980s kind of care, right? <laughs> And I was stuck here for about 15, 16 days. Jeez. And it took, it took me maybe two years to get back to being fit, mobile again. But it was weird that instead of it being a depressive experience, <laughs> it was actually, I actually looked at my life and I thought, what the fuck? <laughs> Just because I saw it in these stages, yeah. incremental stages of risk yeah. and more risk and risk. And pushing it and pushing it and seeing the damage you do to those around you in the process. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, so weirdly the best thing on earth that happened to me was breaking my leg. Yeah. Because I actually sat down for six months in one place and thought, I'm lucky to be alive. Yeah. I'm lucky to be alive in so many ways. And this cycle of continually looking for these experiences... And it was like, stop, deep breaths. Yeah. That's, it was, it was kind of strange. I'm the only person that would actually, is grateful to say, because Zapped it stopped me being, 
if, if, it, if it hadn't happened here, something worse could have happened somewhere else. I feel like I get the impression that the universe sees you as like a, vi- a vital cog in this machine because by all accounts, you shouldn't really be here, should you? It's just like you're untouchable. See when, by the way, see when the mountain rescue team had to come and get you for your skiing accident? Were they pissed off that they had to come all the way up to that? <laughs> I'd already paid for a helicopter, so it was all right. That is absolutely <laughs> mental, though. Oh, so you just get a hit. See, when you said heli-skiing, I was like, that sounds to me like a helicopter, and I thought, surely fucking not. But, oh. aye, that's what it is. Um, do you ever see yourself, I don't want to say calming down, but do you ever see yourself, like, slippers on, having a coffee, chilling out, just I, forever? I'm very... Look, unfortunately, the world is not in a stable state. And unfortunately, my skill set yeah. lends itself quite well. I was hoping to be kind of winding my neck in at then this Vlad- point. Vladimir Putin went a bit mental. But just, it's, it's that different how the kind of world kind of feels just now. Yeah. Um, but I, I think now I tend to stand back a lot more. It's not, it's, you know, you're not looking to be... I feel to do my job, you have credibility if you're seen as doubt out there with the national staff and experience in what they are. Yeah. But I think now, for me, it's important to kind of step back and kind of, like, step back and kind of travel less and put my family through less misery. <laughs> yeah. They'll be, they'll be feeling like they've won the lottery that they've still got you, just <laughs> a, a, even just in one piece. Um just a wee quick bit of insight, because I was really fascinated by what you said at lunch about uh, Ukraine and the way that it's presented in the media. Um, first of all, by the way, we'd just like to preface this by saying I'm in no way, because you know, I'm always thinking, how will somebody twist what I'm saying? Completely in support of Ukraine, absolutely no, no question, but I find it interesting the different media representations. What is your experience or your, your thoughts on the sort of broad media representation of what's going on and what is actually going on? I mean, I'll, I'll answer this through a different perspective going through our question about you're asking how does this impact you? Remember yeah. we're talking in uh-huh. that sense. Now, if I haven't worked in Ukraine during the first six weeks of the conflict, um, I find I have a higher level of anxiety if I switch the TV on and watch, or I open up you know, the websites, news websites, and I see it in the headlines, headlines, headlines. I think the conflict, it's a very bad conflict, right? And it's a key point. But I just think for us, and this is a personal thing, when you're dealing with the information as it comes through and how these things are presented, we're not continually at this juncture. The level, the level of stress you get reading those headlines, but the reality is, if you're there and how it functions and how people are functioning there, are two different things. And I think it's important to keep that kind of perspective, because sometimes I find my anxiety levels go through the roof. Because basically, if you sign into Twitter. You're just going to see World War Three has yeah. begun stuff. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, it's like, where are we in reality? Yeah. So that's a kind of, for me, it's a kind of like deep breaths, stand back and think about it more is more important mm-hmm. and kind of how, how, 
how you read that. You were saying about the, the economic sanctions and stuff that have been put in place. You think it will take about another six months for the, the effect of those to really be felt in Russia, which could that then see a, a trigger of some sort of fundamental change, either from the top... I mean, basically, Vladimir Putin being ousted is kind of my question. I mean, these, these are... These are million-dollar questions. Yeah. Everybody's got a perspective on where this kind of goes and how long it can be sustained. I don't know. I've not got, I've not got that answer, but I think experience tells me... Look, look at conflicts we've been through that have seemed critical, like this clash of civilizations. Syrian war's still going on, Right. I mean, that's, you know, it's gone through numerous anniversaries. See, that's fucking, It's not going away. That's mental, because it's just not in my mind that the Syrian war's going on. Cause and, it, and it's just over the next border. Aye, that is crazy, here, isn't it? Right. And the thing is that it's, I, I think everything has a longer-term trajectory. Conflicts, all of these conflicts. Yeah. Yemen, um, you know, Sudan... Somalia, all of these things are still going on in different guises of their original form. Um, so I don't have that instant panic that we're heading towards. I think we just have to learn to kind of like... I, I'm, I'm trying... It's one of these ones, you know, in my job, I'm in a position... I can't really comment politically because I'm meant to be in a neutral position, yeah. right? And, you know, this, this is my personal perspective of where it goes. But I just, I just feel conflicts tend to have a much longer trajectory. Mm -hmm. Therefore, that, from my perspective, this idea that you've got a result instantly, I find that, no, just slow down, deep breaths, we'll get there in the end. We'll get there in the end. Are you, are you back, how often are you back in Glasgow? Um, I, get, try and, I try and get back a few times a year. Try and see my mommy at least two or three months. I'll try and work for that. That's ideal. Can we get a beer next time you're back? We can. We can get several. Oh, we'll go for aye. Yeah, exact that's exactly what I want to hear. Mate, this is this has been amazing. First of all, actually, on Mike, want to thank you for all your help while being here. He kept his kept his right. I think we've had a far better time in Istanbul, thanks to you. And uh, thank you for being so honest and, and open with me. You're you're welcome. I've yeah, I bet you get ripped off tonight by a taxi driver. Folks. Oh, no, they fuck, by the way, they've absolutely seen us coming. It's only when we got further out, like you said, during that tourist bit, um, it's only when we get further out, and I get, we get a fillet steak, big massive chicken wrap, two coffees, two juice, two water, and it came to nine quid, and you're like, oh, for fuck's sake, this is what it was meant to be costing. Yeah. But even then, it's that cheap, you're still going, this is amazing. But what a place, I, and I will definitely be back, so... I'll be pestering you for recommendations again sometime soon. You're welcome. Uh, and thank you for listening, as always, and we'll be back with another episode of Blethered soon. From Istanbul, cheers. Blethered was written, recorded and produced by Sean McDonald in association with The Big Light. Music and post-production by Brian McAlpine. And for more information, go to thebiglight.com. If you like this podcast, please check out all our other series, including Talk Media, Natural Wonders, You Could Start a Fight in an Empty House, Talking Derry Girls, Brave Your Day, The Tartan Noir Show, Double Scotch, Great Scott, Trust Me I'm a Leader, Unearthed, 
a sonic hug and old school all on the big light scotland's podcast network from the big light studio 